crew, prepare for takeoff. Welcome to Absolute Clarity, a new podcast bringing you all the business travel news you need to know about. Each episode, we welcome a guest onto the show to give us their thoughts and opinions on the headlines, as well as bringing a topic of conversation for the second half of the show. If you would like to get involved, you can tweet us at Clarity underscore TM using the hashtag Absolute Clarity. I'm your host, Kyle Daniels, and today I'm joined by James Kingston of CBRE to talk about nightmare travel. Welcome to the show, James. Hi. Just a bit of background here, James. What is it you're doing? Where are you from? Uh, so I'm a chartered surveyor based in Manchester. I work for CBRE in the valuation department. Obviously, as this is the first show, format might change a little bit. But the main thing is I wanted to cover two news articles today. Those are the cost limit alcohol at airports. And also, uh, we'll try and get into some of this mire around Virgin taking Daily Mail off the shelves and Richard Branson coming back and kind of pulling the rug out of the staff. Ryanair has called on UK airports to enforce a two-drink limit after a BBC Panorama investigation suggested arrests of drunken passengers have risen by 50% in a year. This came out probably about August last year. I think that one of the stats was a total of 387 people were arrested between February 2016 and February 2017, up from 255 the previous year. A lot of newspapers picked up on this. It was across everywhere, Sky News, BBC, Guardian, and so on. It's been picked up again recently because the Home Office have said that they're considering uh, bringing us in the licensing app into UK airports, drinking time from 10am onwards. I know that Jet2 and Ryanair have kind of set their stalls out. What about yourself? What do you think? You, obviously, you do a lot of business travel. That's why you're on the show. What were your feelings about the... Well, um, I mean, it probably depends what what you're travelling for. If, you know, if I'm travelling on a stag do or, um, you know, I'm going on holiday, then you probably want a beer in the airport. I, it's a difficult one. I think it's like a lot of these things. It's the... Uh, probably a minority spoiling it for the majority like I'm I'll have a drink at seven in the morning if I'm going on holiday because the holiday starts when you get to the airport and you're checked in and when you're there with the kids it's you know you're stressed out have a beer but um look people drinking to excess in any situation it causes problems for other people doesn't it but how much of it is down to the problem getting worse and how much of it is down to airlines really being tight on costs and, and not wanting to have to deal with the aftermath I, mean, I, I don't know, but can you really complain if they drop it? But then ultimately... I think Ryanair saying about a two-drink limit is one thing. I think bringing in this not serving alcohol until after 10am is another thing, because surely you're just going to get people booking on later flights. Or they're going to bring their own alcohol, or maybe get drunk yeah. before they get to the airport. I think, well, uh, I re- you know, one of the things I read about it, where they were saying you've got to be careful what you sell. You, you can't... In, what other situation like that can you go you can't walk in the traffic centers particularly and buy mixers and min, you know miniatures yeah so but you can in an airport at the duty-free well that's only for drinking then and there so i think it's a difficult one i, I think ultimately you'll get people drinking more before they get there um yeah potentially drinking on the flight their own booze or you know realistically you're then gonna have to have people watching out for someone buying a bottle of vodka in duty-free and then drinking it at the airport which I mean, it's just adding hassle on that level. It's an odd one because as far back as I can remember, people drank at the airport. Like you said, people who went away on holiday had a drink. The figures that 255 more arrests between uh, Feb 2016 and 2017 on the previous year, part of that, is that not just tougher stances by 
the police by the airports. Because I could imagine that the drinking hasn't maybe increased or... I mean, the other thing is, is it, is it a percentage? Because yeah. as an absolute figure, you know, are more people flying than were flying last year? Like, yeah, are, is, are people being stricter, you know, with everything going on around terrorism, things like that? There's probably more police in the airport than there were five years ago. Mm. So... What we don't know is, like you say, has there been a forced crackdown? I mean, I can't... I mean, I've seen people drinking when they've been flying for, what, the last, you know, probably 15 years or so, and I've I not particularly noticed it getting any worse. I've never seen any big problems, and I've been in airports a lot. So, you know, is it particular flights? Is it particular times of the day? There probably needs to be a bit more nuance than a two-drink limit. Um, yeah. And it probably comes down to where you're flying to. I mean, Ryanair um, already stops people flying from... I think it's Glasgow press switch and Manchester to Alicante and Ibiza bringing their own alcohol onto the plane. Yeah, it says so, a lot about Glasgow and Manchester exactly. that they're the places that have stopped. <laughs> um, funnily enough, I've, knowing I was coming here today, I sort of mentioned this in the office to sort of see what the general opinion was. And my boss is from Glasgow. And when I mentioned certain airports had been limited, she just looked at me straight away and went, I bet Glasgow is one of them. So, you know, there you go. But, um, but yeah, I mean, maybe it's about that. Maybe it's being sensible about certain flights, certain times of day it's an odd one that they that it does sit outside the licensing laws but the consequences are harsh you know if you turn up to a flight drunk it's a big call for security to stop you because it's not like getting thrown out of a bar you know you're by telling a member of staff that they have the ability to stop you getting on a plane or stop you moving towards on a flight the the consequences of that decision are much bigger and the person's going to kick off a lot more you know if you're politely asked to leave a bar because someone thought you had too much or you know, they feel you should sober up. I mean, I've, I've had it before where I've gone to go in somewhere and they've said, look, mate, walk around the block a couple of times and then we'll let you in. You know, you're not really going to get annoyed at that. But if you are, if someone's saying to you, sorry, mate, you're not, you're not going on holiday. You're not go- all your mates are going on that stag do and you're not going. That's a big call. That's a big responsibility to put on a member of staff to make that call. So if they're going to crack down on it, you've got to have the right staff doing yeah. it. I mean, we're looking at this from a, a leisure perspective as well, but I mean, you travelled a lot for business, have you ever had companies that have had um, certain regulations about drinking before you've got on a flight? Is it, or has it never come up it, because it's never been an issue? It, it's never really come up because it's not been an issue. I think there's been obvious that there's different rules in different countries. Um, you know, if you're you know, flying out of Muslim countries, things like that, you'd, you'd perhaps be a bit more cautious. You know, we'd often, if we've been away for a long time, be a bit more relaxed on the way back and wanting to have a drink and sort of, you know, relax a bit. And I did have a lot of situations whereby... You know, I was often at the airport very early before a return flight because of, you know, internal travel or, uh, you know, other reasons. So, you know, you'll sit, you'll sit and have a quiet drink. But, I mean, you've got to be going some to get drunk. You, you're not going to get to an airport more than three hours before. So, you you know, by the time you've gone through security and everything else, you're, you're putting in some effort to get properly drunk. But, yeah, I've, I, I, I can't remember having seen a problem with it from a business point of view. But then, you know, I wasn't getting a business flight to Ibiza at a time a stag do would be flying. Maybe that's part of the problem. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the things that they picked up on, there's a line here that says a total of 19,000 of Unite Union's cabin crew members were surveyed. 4,000 of them responded with one in five saying they suffered physical abuse on the flights. Clearly, from their point of view, they're going to be looking at, say, the duty of care of their employees yeah. are going to be looking at that. But then again, some of this is going to come down to, if you're a cabin crew, like you were saying before, if you're a cabin crew member and you approach someone that's obviously stag do, hen do, had a few too many to drink and you start trying to enforce some things on their holiday yeah. they probably feel entitled to yeah because some people go in with that entitlement of 
I paid X amount of hundred pound for this holiday. Yeah. You're here to serve me. Yeah. Obviously, it doesn't work that way, but that's when it can get a little bit aggressive. And yeah, I think so. And I, look, it, it's totally unacceptable that people are being, um, you know, uh, assaulted or harassed or you know whatever it is on a flight, regardless of of you know what what your job role is. I think, unfortunately, probably cabin crew fall into one of those historical positions like you know a, a barmaid or a waitress who probably have to suffer of it more yeah. than other people because it's because alcohol is involved ultimately um you know there probably has been a rise in you know how much of this is down to stag do and hen is that you know they've just escalated over the years haven't they there's yeah. now it is people going abroad so it is more people put in a position where they're gonna have a problem on a flight it's absolutely unacceptable that anyone should be you know assaulted in that way or treated in that way um but that you know alcohol or not that is just wrong and i think the world that's part of the whole bigger thing that you know we you know, everyone realizes how unacceptable that is and and it's the world is turning that way and i think sometimes cause and effect has to be considered i think we you know there's a zero tolerance on that nowadays which is ab- absolutely correct but you know how much of that is caused by purely alcohol and how much of it is people getting giddy because they're going on holiday and they feel that someone like that in the past perhaps people have felt that's a bit more fair game than than other people they come across and you know it's like anything people will do things when they're on holiday or when they or in a bar that they would never do in their normal life and that probably does extend itself to flights and airports unfortunately would it change your probably your choice if you were coming to book a, an airline if they had say like jet two for instance a mm. banned sale of alcohol before 8am on their flights would that affect who you choose would you necessarily choose an airline that maybe doesn't have such strict regulations or does it not generally matter to you? Well, it totally depends on the purpose of the flight. If I was if I was 10 years younger and organising a stag do, then yeah, but yeah. I absolutely probably wouldn't book that flight if I was involved in organising it purely because I couldn't be bothered with the hassle off the other people saying, oh, why have you booked this? We can't have a drink. Yeah, yeah. And now, you know, if I was flying, you know, I've got a young daughter, if I was flying with her, then maybe, maybe the converse is true and I wouldn't want to end up on a flight with a load of drunk people but ultimately i've not particularly had a bad experience so it's not something that's really on my radar when i'm coming to think about it obviously the home office is still coming up with this they're still looking into it so judging by their previous record we'll probably have a decision in 2022 23 (laughs) by that point all of us will stop drinking so it'll cost too much money absolutely (laughs) on to the second news story and possibly the one that kind of is a dividing opinion more than any at the minute backstory of this is that Virgin decided that they were going to stop stocking the Daily Mail. The decision that was told to the Daily Mail was that they just didn't have the space for it. Later it came out that the staff on Virgin Trains said that uh, views and opinions within the Daily Mail didn't align with theirs. Yeah. So obviously their stance on immigration, LGBT rights and unemployment. Daily Mail's hitting back at this saying it's disgraceful. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Richard Branson releases a statement saying that he doesn't believe in censorship. They're going to restock the Daily Mail while they look into it. Yeah. What are your views really in terms of what the original stance from Daily, from Virgin Trains yeah. and then from Richard Branson? Uh, I mean, I think, I think to begin with, you've got to look at the wider, where we are in the world. I think, that, you know, two big issues are that we're in a bit of an age of outrage that people, that, sorry, look to be offended, but I think potentially more easily offended in some instances quite rightly, in some yeah. instances not. Personally, I don't read the Daily Mail. Um, I think the stance they take on a lot of things is, you know, I don't like. However, you know, I was once told that actually the best thing you should do is read the newspaper you don't agree with 
because otherwise you're in an echo chamber just hearing what you want to hear. Um, but the Daily Mail's gone down this route of, and I, you know, it's to do with the internet. They've, they've, each paper's had to take its own view on how they're going to make money in the current day and age. Daily Mail have gone down the route of clickbait. You know, they are, they have, as a business model, done fantastically well out of being outrageous and offensive. They do it on purpose. It generates big headlines. It gets clickbait on the internet, and that works for them. Now, I, I completely can see, and I, I don't think it particularly is a brand that is in line with what Virgin seems to try and stand for. You know, I've got no issue with them dropping it. I, I don't think, personally, I don't think it's censorship because it, they don't stock every newspaper. They're not a news agent. If WH Smith had done this or Tesco's or something like that, that is censorship because they stock every newspaper and they are choosing one newspaper not to stock. This is just, you know, a product range and they're, they're dropping something from their pocket product range. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be in agreement with it personally, but I can understand why the Daily, the Daily Mail have been very clever in the way they've reacted. Yeah. I mean, just looking at the Daily Mail now, just going on there, the headline, lesbian YouTuber star wins damages in landmark UK revenge porn case against her ex-boyfriend for sharing videos of them. Ex-Wales manager Gary Speed was one of four men coached by paedophile boss Barry Bennell. Theresa May going on about Carillion. You've got Irish PM mocked for saying stuff about Brexit. I mean, you can kind of see where Daily Mail, like the Virgin Change is coming from. I mean, look, yeah. those, those probably are the stories yeah. of the day, but they'll also have, you know, celebrity in bikini, yeah. that kind of thing down the side. So, and some of the stances they have taken yeah. recently have been difficult. Now, it's all been complicated by Brexit because they are very pro-Brexit. Branson is on record as saying he's for Remain. Yeah. The other papers they stock are for Remain. So the Daily Mail have played that card. Um, and, you know, the, unfortunately, the Daily Mail has a lot of influence in this country. Um, they've reacted in a way that uh, they've backed Branson into a corner because I think of the way it's been. Now, if, we, if it's to be believed that this is genuinely from the staff upwards saying, we don't think this, um, we're not happy to be selling this, we're not happy to be stocking it. You know, on that level, it's the same as people not stocking the sun in Liverpool because yeah. of their, their stance on Hillsborough, you know. There is a history and of this, and I, they're not a public, you know, Virgin Trains aren't a public body. They're not, a, you know, they're not a news agent. They're not your go-to place to buy a newspaper. This day, you want to read the Daily Mail, you know, you can buy it at the train station, pick it up before you go, you can read it on your phone. It, it's not censoring you. They're if not going to be taking it off you, are they? They're not going to see you no, reading it on exactly. the train and that, snatch that, out your hand. Yeah, that would be censorship. If they were saying, we're not letting you bring the Daily Mail on our train, absolutely, that is wrong. You know, I'd, I wouldn't agree with that, but... They're under no obligation to sell any newspapers. Ultimately, mm. I'm sure they don't stock. You know, having been on a Virgin train ferry recently, they haven't got the Sunday Sport. You know, they, they've got there's plenty of newspapers they don't yeah. stock. Maybe that's the way that they should have gone down the route of, listen, we don't stock every newspaper. While we don't agree with your stance on a lot of things, here's a list of other papers that generally we don't have an issue with that we still don't stock. Yeah, because we just don't have the space. Like, realize yeah. we're giving up seats paying seats to stock newspapers. It's, it's very difficult. I think it's... I'd be very interested to see if you did sort of a straw poll what people would think, but I, I honestly, I think I'd like to see more companies take these kind of stances. You know, I, you know, I think it's a really positive thing that you've had the likes of Lego and Paper Chase, you know, backing down after their customer base has said, you know, we don't want you... We don't want you to be associated with the Daily Mail. I mean, to me, Paper Chase seemed a crazy one that they ever 
got involved with the Daily Mail in yeah, the first place. Yeah, it was an odd place. link anyway. Yeah, yeah, it felt like an odd, odd situation. Um, a lot of Lego users do read the mail, though, apparently. A lot of those, <laughs> a lot of those six-year-olds <laughs> yeah, uh, I can, I can just well can't imagine. get enough of that mail. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it, it, it's dodgy ground, but... I mean, what about Branson kind of coming in and pulling the rug? Because Branson has always, to me, seemed like very hands-on with his staff, like he's a man of the people. Yeah. He's built up a lot of loyalty with his staff over the years. And not yeah. just his staff, but users of any products that he has. And then to come out with that does seem to be very kind of... Well, I mean, it's a joint, it's a joint venture, isn't yeah. it? Because it's Virgin, it's Virgin partnering with, I believe, Stagecoach, or yeah. certainly a partnership. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, behind the scenes... It seems a lot of flack was aimed at him personally rather yeah. than Virgin as a brand. So whether that's affected things, but yeah, I, I'd have, I'd have had more respect for him if he'd have stood there and gone, "We will, I will look into this. I don't know why the decision was taken, but I, you know, I want to hear my staff's justification yeah. before it. it feels a bit like a snap decision because of pressure, external pressure. Now whether that is pressure from the Daily Mail or whatever it may be but yeah, I, yeah. I'd rather he'd backed his staff and if, if I'd have been one of those staff who'd taken that decision or if I'd have been a staff who had if I'd have been a staff member who'd have felt that I'd been listened to that I I didn't agree you know whether it was a my, say it was the majority if I was one of that majority that worked for Virgin felt we'd been listened to felt that um, the management have listened to us. They've taken a decision that we want them to take. And then the man at the absolute top turns around and says, actually, no, we're not doing that. I think it's pretty demotivating. But it, it totally depends on how that process has come about in the first place. Part of the, the response part there was saying that they did listen to staff and they valued the staff and, and whatnot. Freedom of speech, freedom of choice and tolerance for differing views are the core principles of any free and open society. While Virgin Trains has always said that their passengers are free to read whatever newspaper they choose on board West Coast Trains, it's clear that on this occasion, a decision to no longer sell the mail has not been seen to live up to those principles. I get where he's come from. I get the fact that he wants to live in this, this society that is very open, that's very honest, and that's free speech and, and whatnot. Sir Richard is in a no-win situation because he's got to think about the people that are using the trains. Yeah, He's got to think about his staff. He's got to think about the, the costs. It's him and Barry, Barry Souter. And, and he's in kind of a, a catch-22, no-win situation. He's got to go one way or the other. Yeah. And he can't advocate for freedom of speech. He can't advocate for non-censorship if yeah. his company's doing that. Absolutely. But then, I mean, they were selling the Daily Mail. So that, you know, that's a choice. I, you know, I don't, I can't, I'm not sure if Virgin do it or not, but, you know, certain places where you travel will give you a newspaper. You know, I think, it, I think it's the case in first class that you have, there are some newspapers for yeah. free. Now that's, a more interesting one if they'd have pulled Daily Mail from what they were giving away. You know, yeah. ultimately, they could be stocking those Daily Mails and throwing them away at the end of every day. I mean, they'll probably sell more of them now because people who want to read the Daily Mail will, will, will take that will, stance. Yeah. That but, you know, if you're the editor of The Sun or the owner of The Sun and they're not stocked, you know, aren't you going to turn around and say that, well, we should be stocked as well? Is he going to have a situation where he's having to sell every, every newspaper yeah. under the sun? I, I, I think it was... You know, I think it was a good stance because I think some of what they say is is terrible. Um, and my bigger issue with the Daily Mail is that they often take very little responsibility for what they've said. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they do say things that cause a lot of problems. And it's this whole issue that you get with a lot of newspapers where, you know, they'll splash something over the front page and then it proves to be wrong and the retraction is hidden away in the bottom corner yeah. of page seven. You know, they're, they're, they're bad for doing that kind of thing. But 
ultimately people like it it sells papers that's what their job is his job is to run the trains it'll get swept under the carpet now but I'd have rather seen him stand by his staff you know rightly or wrongly I think he should have backed them and then reviewed while you know they've made a decision that decision stands we will review it we may restock them in the future once I fully understand what's gone on yeah. I think to force them into a retraction straight away is a bit unfair on whatever process has gone on because it's Richard Branson like he's not going to be involved in that nitty gritty no I don't think anyone would expect him to be yeah. but I, th I just think ultimately you've always got to back your staff and then take that decision later well, it's a good stance. If only you'd have been running Virgin Trains, we wouldn't have had this <laughs> yeah, issue, well, James. Yeah. This is what it comes down to. Maybe Richard's listening to this. He's probably not, but if he is, start your own newspaper, Richard. <laughs> uh, there's a load of headlines you can get from the Daily Mail. And so uh, what we're going to do now, we're going to move on to uh, the topic section. I know you brought a topic with you today. We're going to be talking about nightmare travel. Like you say, you travel yeah. a lot for, for business. But what we'll do, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with that straight after this. Are you looking to make cost savings to your travel program, but don't know where to start? Do you want to make your business travel more productive, but don't know how? Do you need to improve travel efficiency, but can't find a way? These are big issues which will resonate with many business travelers and travel buyers. In our new report, Planes, Trains and Marginal Gains, we tackle these issues and give you the tools to make small changes that equal big savings. To find out more, simply visit claritytm.co.uk and download the report today. And we're back. Thanks for joining us again, James. What we wanted to do with topic of conversation today was nightmare travel. Yeah. Uh, I know that you've had a lot of situations in your career yeah. where you've traveled. Yeah. Some good, some bad. Yeah, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag. Um, so less so now. Um, working for CBRM UK based. Previous to that, I worked for a company called Rushton International. As the name suggests, a uh, lot of international travel there. So yeah. I was there for about five years, uh, all in, and um, spent a lot of time uh, traveling the globe doing that, doing um, uh, insurance valuations of various assets around the world. So um, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly did a lot of travel. What was the first business travel that you've ever done? So it started off when I moved, when I, when I started at Rushton, and to begin with, it was a lot of um, you know UK-based stuff, you know, travelling up to to Scotland for a week, in, into Wales, wherever it may be. So yeah, covering off lots sort of UK assets, yeah. um, which was fine, you know, pretty simple stuff, mostly in the car and and hotels. So that was it. It was generally just driving up to these locations and, and you'd have yeah. a hotel there for the time. Well, you're ten tending to try and do a loop, so you'd, you'd often be, it often wouldn't be. Um, conducive to being on a train because you'd be uh, you wouldn't know how long you'd be at each place and you'd be trying to pick off two or three locations I did a bit of it on the train where I could because it was you know let the train take the strain as it was but um, but yeah mostly mostly driving yeah right okay and equipment wise was it easier with I mean did you have much equipment that you were taking along or was it yeah no it wasn't too bad it was just uh, yeah just like a you know standard sort of laptop distos nothing very big it, you know couple of things chucked in the boot um yeah and did you prefer the driving the car because did it give you a bit more freedom than you would have had if you had a train if you got to the hotel you couldn't i don't I d yeah I, d I didn't mind it I d it totally depended where i was going if i was traveling north then i was more than happy driving because we did a fair bit of work in scotland but once you get out of manchester very little you know traffic up that way it's quite a nice run through if i was going south i'd soon get on the train just because it just got so busy yeah um so yeah the, i mean yeah the car gave you a bit of freedom um and often you just didn't have a choice um realistically 
And what the hotels like that you were staying at? What kind of <laughs> what kind of range uh, were we talking about? Cheap and cheerful, or I'd say it's a mixed bag. Um, usually, most of the time we were traveling on the uh, client's dime, should we say? So it was mostly um, stuff you could claim back as part of the contract. Sometimes it wasn't, in which case you you try to, to to go a bit tighter. So I mean, you know, where possible, we we're in premier inns, uh, holiday inns, that kind of of thing. We stayed in, so to, like, to begin with, you know, we at one stage we had a Premier Inn card, so we'd just always stay in a Premier Inn, nice and easy, knew what you were getting, consistent, food got a bit dull, but, um, you know, at least you knew, you knew it was going to be a decent yeah. enough hotel when you got there. Um, when you couldn't do that, you were sort of on your own and, and booking your own thing a little bit, and yeah, some of those got a bit ropey, so I can remember staying in... Um, Staying in a, in a B&B, which all seemed fine on the internet. And then when you got there, it was a nice, um, it was, uh, yeah, the toilet was in literally in the room, like literally in the room. It said it was an ensuite, but it was literally in one corner you of the room. You can't get more ensuite than You cannot get more ensuite, yeah, it. no, they're literally. Or prison, I think one, they call it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it wasn't far off, yeah. Literally just a toilet in one corner, shower cubicle in the other, and a very dodgy bed. And that was, yeah, that was one of those days where you're like, oh. Did it feel a really bit only fools and horses when they went to a... <laughs> yeah not not too far away yeah yeah well i've done i've done actually done um inspections in prisons and they, they were probably better than uh than this place but there you go what was important to you send when you obviously you booking your own hotel was it the proximity to where the client was was it amenities they offered what was the um so look it changed as it went on um when i first started doing it I was green around the gills and you would do you're just trying to you know you you, you felt like oh, I'll save the boss a bit of money or they'll keep everybody happy and then you kind of realize that actually no one cares um you know you saving 20 30 quid on a hotel is not really making any great difference to the world so but initially yeah you, you, you know you try and like you'll shop around and you'll you've got looking back the time I wasted trying to get a good deal at times when in fact know made made very little difference to the ultimate end end goal of the job but to me yeah i mean proximity to site um i'd usually like to get up early get on get the job done and then have a bit of time in the hotel in the evening so um you know generally just as long as it was a, a comfortable place to sleep i was pretty happy when you were having a, an odd health kick or something, you might you might insist upon a gym, yeah. but um, <laughs> how often it actually got used, <laughs> I don't know. As long as it's got stairs, as long as you're on the top floor, yeah, you just make up Yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah. I mean, what about things like Wi-Fi? And, I mean, was that important to you from... from yeah, I mean, that, that became a big bugbear because, you know, it meant you could do work in the evenings, which, um, you know, when we were away, you know, sometimes I'd be away for three weeks, um, when, especially when I was doing the international. But even on the UK, if you're away for a week, and you're trying to keep everything straight with what you're doing and you know you get emails and maybe you want to skype home and things like that you know not having wi-fi was really irritating um what was really annoying was when you get there and you know you've paid for your hotel room you've paid for your thing and then they're like actually i want an extra tenner off you for the wi-fi and that yeah. you know that that kills and it's all well and good that they're oh you know it's free down in the lounge you know like, i don't want to sit in the lounge I've, I've been dealing with people all day yeah i'm on my own in a hotel room i just want to you know if you want to Netflix and stuff wasn't a bigger thing when I started it. But yeah. now, you know, I'd certainly want Wi Fi in the room so you could see and watch a movie or something like that. But yeah, that was, it was just frustrating when they were trying to charge you again. You're like, you know, I'm only paying whatever I'm paying at home, you know, 20, 30 quid a month for your Wi Fi. 
and yet you want tenner and I you can give me twelve hours. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy. I mean, we did a, a report recently. We we partnered up with BTIQ and it was into marginal gains and and whatnot. Right. And one of the things that they actually spoke to people about was. Uh, when you were staying in a hotel, more people valued um, leisure facilities right. over Wi-Fi. Okay. And maybe that's in a case now that when you get your phone contract, you can get like 20 gig of data, 50 gig of yeah. data even in some instances. Whereas yeah. I suppose back then it wasn't the case. You Yeah, well, that, you this, is, this is where, what, you, know, and, you know, I suppose a lot of this changed quite rapidly because, you know, you're nearly 10 years ago from when I started. And yeah, you know, you, you couldn't just turn your phone over to a Wi-Fi hotspot and and use it you, you genuinely needed the actual wi-fi to make anything work yeah. and yeah but I, yeah would legislation be more important now uh i you know as time went on perhaps a bit more um i suppose it depends on the person as well isn't it if it's someone that like you were saying you just want to get in maybe watch a bit of netflix chill, yeah. take that time to yourself yeah you would value that more yeah i yeah and it, i think also it depends you know how often you're away yeah. uh, it, by the time i left um, by the time I changed roles and, and moved to CBRE, uh, I think the last year there I spent a hundred nights away from home, in various locations. Be it you know that's UK and abroad, all in, and I, I probably did that the last three years I was there. I bet I averaged between a hundred and a hundred and ten nights away, and so I think that changes your view on it. If I was away now, maybe you know if I was away once a month and the occasional time I am away in London with with my current job. Um, yeah, you, you, it's a bit more of a treat and you're a bit more, yeah, I want this, I want that. Yeah. But then when you're doing it all the time, you begin to think, actually, I I'm not, you can have all the gyms you want. I probably yeah. won't bother using it. I've been on site all day running, you know, walking around and by the time I get in, I just want to get changed, have some food and crash. So, yeah. And you've got a young daughter doing. as well, so you've got all the gym that you need at home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now you just, now I'd just be pleased with the sleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How did it move them from you, obviously doing a lot of your kind of domestic travel how did it yep. then turn into international uh so the company always did international mm. the whole time i was there and it was it's just sort of uh seniority and experience so to begin with you were useful to them you know running around and doing all these relatively sort of more low value low profile work which tend to be domestic and then um yeah as i progressed in my career um you started to get onto the you know put your hand up and, and get a few of the foreign jobs so um i mean look don't get me wrong i, I I'll tell you a few stories in a minute that um, where I'm moaning about it, but ultimately it's fantastic, you know, see, see a bit of the world and, you know, I was the right age, right point in life, didn't have, didn't have a child. Um, yeah, it was great. Yeah. Absolutely great. When you look back at the places I've been and, and what you've done, it was, it was fantastic. But And now you're going to complain about them. British, and now I'm going to, now I'm going to tell you how terrible yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So well, it wasn't the place. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the places. It was the getting there half yeah, yeah. the time, but. So what was your first trip abroad then? Obviously work-wise, what was your... Yeah, so first trip abroad work-wise, um, the uh, the more senior members of staff uh, were pretty confident that it absolutely ruined me for um, for future travel because from the point of view of the location. So um, it was it was pretty incredible. It was um, a mine in South Africa on the edge of the Kruger Park. So literally, you know, middle of nowhere, um, this huge huge copper mine it was the biggest man-made hole in africa it you've never seen anything like it um but literally the safari came onto the mine so they couldn't uh they couldn't really keep the animals off so they just basically made it part of the safari park so when we were doing our um, health and safety to go on it was all that you know we'll watch out for forklifts 
there's obviously a lot of heavy machinery, all that, all the usual stuff. And you got so blasé to it in the UK because I was doing it all the time that you were like, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. And then you, and then they get to the next page or the next bit of the thing we were doing, and they're like, right now, animals. Um, you, you, if you see a um, lion, a lioness, uh, you should. Um, just stand your ground and stay still. They will wander off unless they've got a cub with them, in which case you should back away, but don't turn your back on them. And you're reading all this and going, nah. You know, you read you read health and safety, and normally they're like, you know, be careful of this, be careful of that. And you never see it. You never see any problems, and you very rarely see any of the stuff that they're worried about. And I'm thinking, and they're like, you know, be careful driving. There's elephants around. There's this, there's that, the other. And you're like, yeah, well, okay, maybe. But you think, oh, I won't see anything. Literally pulled out of the compound to go onto the mine proper, and had to stop while a herd of elephant crossed the road. And it was just, wow. you never see anything like it. But yeah, it was a bit of a... So, so as you can Scotland imagine, my... Co- like yeah, imagine, just yeah. like Scotland, yeah. Just like Scotland. And as you can imagine, all my colleagues were like, uh, it's not always like this. <laughs> this is an unusual... Because <laughs> yeah. it's your first time. Yeah. So were the elephants the only animals that you got to experience on that first trip? Um, no, no, no. So there were, what was on the mine? So we saw elephants, baboons, um, giraffes. Um, and that was a really good trip as well because um, we managed to um, sort ourselves out and have a uh, break in the middle. We were away for three weeks um, and we had it in the middle where we had uh, two days of safari. So one of the weekends, the mine was open on the weekend, but the, the, the people we needed to deal with weren't really there. So we um, two weeks in, we took two days off. And because um, we, we, when you're away, you you tend to work seven days a week because what else are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we took two days off, went on safari and that we, we saw everything except for the big cats, which was, you know, disappointing, but yeah, inc- absolutely incredible. Should have got your money back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You said, you said yeah. in this form, well, I was going to see some cats. In terms of the planning of that, was that done through a, a travel management company? Was that done with somebody that was just in house with the company? How did that Um So out? yeah, life... Life varied a bit in the time I was at Rushton's. Um, so when I was first there, uh, it was a mix of booking it yourself. And there was a chap who would book trips like that for us. But he was primarily a he was a sort of one-man band travel agent. So he would, you know, he'd book your, your, your two-week package trip to Benidorm and he'd, he'd do this for us as well. So he didn't. He was a... He was a travel agent, but you know, not not a commercial travel <coughs> person. Um, and then by the time I left, I think the last eighteen months or so, we had a, a you know a sort of proper travel management firm. So we experienced the gamut of it that went through that that particular trip. Like I say, was was booked by this guy. Um, I shan't name names, but um, honestly, so I you know, as you can imagine, first trip I was pretty green. Um, we. Uh, as, as I got more experienced and we got to know this guy a bit more, we realised that, you know, there's certain bits which were a bit, uh, should we say, slightly sketchy. So things were getting booked that helped him rather than us. Uh, okay. You know, t- the airlines like he was using. Yeah, all those kind of things that, that, you know, we weren't getting the points, but he was, uh, he was. And then if he wasn't available when you had a problem, it was a nightmare. But um, yeah, so we, very first trip. And as much as, like I say, the destination was incredible, what we got to do when we got there was incredible. The flight. So we flew out there. Absolutely fine. Most flights to Southern Africa, a lot of it goes through Johannesburg. Got to Johannesburg. um, And we knew we were on a little flight in the morning. Um, Little internal flight up to the the mine. Um, You know, a little propeller plane type thing. So we get off. We land at, I think we landed about 10 o'clock at night. And he'd booked us some accommodation. Fine. 
said airport hotel perfect now obviously you've got to get there an hour before the next day um i think our flight in the morning was like six seven o'clock so you not got a big window wander out where's this hotel the guy sort of says oh, i say well i must be just off site someone told us we had to get a taxi went out got a taxi jumped in um this guy sets off and we're like been in this taxi a while where's he going and we've and we've literally you walk out the airport in johannesburg there's sort of three hotels there we're like why aren't we in one of them i just want to go to bed and then uh get drive out looking out the window it's looking increasingly um rough further away from the airport you get now having spent more time in johannesburg i realized that actually a lot of its compounds and it looks worse than it is from the outside but you know here's me this green englishman landing there for the first time and then we get to the hotel say hotel in inverted commas they've not finished building it it's more of a motel so you've got your own uh sort of you can get to the straight to the car park you don't need to go through reception but go through reception log in realize by now we're in soweto we're not really in johannesburg anymore and you're like all i've heard is negative things about soweto like you know i don't maybe the place isn't as bad as it seems but you don't see a lot of good news stories coming out of soweto so we're already a bit nervous you get in and then we're, we're placed in rooms that are nowhere, different floors, different, like nowhere near these other two chaps I'm traveling with who are a bit more experienced. Get in, I'm like, where am I? I ended up, it was almost like a little apartment, locked the external door, went into the bedroom, brought everything, like quickly clean my teeth, everything that I'd brought with me went into the bedroom with me because I was like, oh, what's going on here? You know, I did this equipment and whatever. Lock then the internal door into the bedroom and then I probably stupidly like barricade the door, put a bit of furniture behind it. I'd worse, like, I don't know if I even slept, but it's just, yeah, it was just like, this is a d- just I, listening to every bang outside. Yeah, every, just, we heard gunshots. Like, wow. we heard gunshots that yeah. night. Um, that was just your work colleagues. Right? That was just my work colleagues, yeah. They were, yeah, I mean, I say I heard gunshots. They probably just were uh, outside the door with their <laughs> phones, like, setting off gunshot noises. But, um, but yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty, uh, pretty ropey. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you, then you're getting a taxi in the morning, back to the airport. It's just a lot of stress when you would put, you, like I say, we walked past two hotels before we even got in the taxi. So, yeah, that was, um, and then, you know, then you got an early flight, and then you're getting straight on the mine, and then people are expecting you to do work. And it was just, yeah, that first, it, look, the first thing I saw was an elephant, so it soon pet me up, yeah, but yeah. it was a pretty, uh, pretty scary introduction. And from a culture side of things, I mean, what was the difference in obviously going over there, working over there? What was the culture shock like? So not too bad. I, you know, South Africa is pretty um, similar, but yeah, ex-empire and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's an odd mix when you get on the mines. It's um, you've got because we were in we were sort of north of Joburg, so it's the, it's the proper belt. It's all sort of um, uh, you know the Boers and all that kind of thing. You've got these guys. I mean, it's no wonder they've got a good rugby team because you guys who in this country would be like getting tapped up for international rugby players built like big American fridges. You've never seen anything like huge guys and they're just like normal guys walking around the mine. So you've got these huge big white guys who are proper like, you know, your burrs and all this kind of thing. And then you've got, um, you know, and then it's just a complete mix. And you could see the change coming through because there was more and more... um, black people getting into it's more senior positions and that varied different places in africa would 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 be different um and you could see you could see the racism in it it, it was it was interesting yeah. It was eye-opening. yeah absolutely yeah yeah and so obviously you've come back from there that was your first kind of experience mm. 
were you still kind of geared up to keep going on on these trips or oh yeah i mean look i just i just come back from three weeks on safari <laughs> I mean, I, someone had paid me to have three weeks on safari more or less and uh, you know every night we were staying in this really nice hotel so every night you were you were going off off site and finishing and having a beer before you went and got a shower and you were looking out over this golf course that had um, zebra and giraffe walking across a golf course while you're sat there having a, a cold beer yeah sign me up for the next job but um but yeah it was a bit of a mixed bag from there really so go on what's the what we'll do um because i know people love misery what was your worst experience then if you, if you travel it? <laughs> yeah okay well worst is a um there's a few there's a few but I, so in in terms of travel one of the most difficult journeys so there's, there's kind of two that stick out there were there was the time I went to Kazakhstan. Um, so we were going to Kazakhstan to look at a oil refinery. Now there's three oil refineries on this site. Two that were nice and shiny and new and built by the British and Americans post-USSR and the one built by the Russians. Kazakhstan was just so we, we terrible. We flew. We had to fly and land in Russia, for starters, because the local airport had been condemned and the runway was not in a fit state to land on. Good start, good start to the journey. The nearest airport in Russia was a five-hour journey to where we needed, to the Kazakhstan border, and then a further two hours drive from there. So we landed, and we were going, I think we went in like, you know, early winter, it was really cold. So we landed in Russia, got bundled into a a minivan that had some other people, because there's a lot of Westerners worked on this place, so this minivan was going back and forth all the time. Get on this minivan, Okay, Russia, not too bad sort of journey to the border, although, you, you know, shattered. In the dead of night, we arrive at the Russian border. Guys with machine guns come on, start poking around. What's going on here? You all have to get off. Some guy we hadn't seen before comes on, passports, passports, pa- takes all our passports, disappears. We were hanging around for two hours at the border while they were fussing about what we were doing. And then you got over the border and... I've never been over a border before that where the, the change was so remarkable because it was the, it's just a big flat country, Kazakhstan, but, it, you know, the road was just pothole after pothole and we had another two hours and you felt ill and you're, you're tired and, oh, it's just a horrendous journey. Absolutely horrendous. And I think the flight to Russia itself was bad because it was like, you know, some airline you've never heard of because that's who flew there and... Yeah, these guys, I didn't envy these guys who, they were, most of the Westerners there were doing a month on, a month off. When we got there, it was, um, yeah, the hotel was terrible. The food was terrible. I mean, the only good bit of food they had was, they had a pizza oven. But we were there for two weeks, so two weeks of pizza is pretty. um, You never wanted to see them (laughs) again. As soon as you got back, it was. And you couldn't do anything. You know, you couldn't leave the hotel at night because um, there was issues around the way the police behaved. And I just, yeah terrible and then another one in turn that was again i mean this one not not so much difficult as in it was bad it was just it was just a slog was i flew to the far end of russia um right out to vladivostok and then worked our way back hopped back through russia which again was incredible and and you know don't get me wrong it was a great experience but it was that was some yeah that was some bad travel so how times. did you work your way back then was it flights was it trains what was the so yeah i mean that was one where we'd had certain stuff booked for us before we went but you know it just shows it it, it's interesting where it shows doing a little bit of research beforehand or speaking to someone who knows what they're doing makes a big difference because 
where there was a lot of hopping back and forth and because you wanted decent airlines you were having to loop back through big cities you couldn't just take little internal flights and the you know Russia is obviously huge um, so flew to St Petersburg spent some time in St Petersburg flew to Vladivostok worked our way back via flights we had one flight and we realized once we were there um, again oh, you're like oh god well how has this not been thought through by somebody uh, but it hadn't been and we realized we were flying we were, we were spending two days essentially flying from where we were back to Moscow and then to where we wanted to be next which was and we're talking like the length of Russia this was one stop after Vladivostok so you know um, it was a long way and then we sort of chatting to some people there and one thing or another realized that actually if we just never got on that flight we could get the overnight train and then we've gained we've saved ourselves two days because the way it was all going to work out we were supposed to like i say spend two days traveling and um so we just caught this sleeper train which i mean that was an experience uh, just little things you don't know which you know you would hope your travel provider would tell you but hadn't told us so is this still this guy this single guy in a um yes yeah, so this was just some, yeah. a travel agent yeah exactly um with a bit of uh, of us chipping in um I, you know russian trains all run on moscow time so i didn't know that so you try and get on a train in russia it will say this train leaves at 8 p.m okay but that's not 8 p.m local time that's 8 p.m moscow time so we're like three or four time zones over and you'll get to the train station and you know you're going oh i want to book eight o'clock train oh that's gone what it's only six yeah moscow time and you're like what and all the trains just all run to moscow time because it's easier than trying to you know work it out and trains will go through time zones because you're on it for that long so yeah and and Obviously, this person that's booking a travel didn't look into that, didn't, didn't yeah. figure that out and have to tell you about it beforehand. But then it was probably the first time he'd ever dealt with Russia, where, you know, because we were, we were a small firm, he was working for us, and then, you know, other, maybe, I think he worked for a couple of other companies. And then, but, you know, what we were doing was quite unusual, going to lots of different countries. And we were going to more obscure locations because, you know, in America, you've got someone, the kind of work we're doing in America, Australia, there's someone who can do it already there who who the people employing you will trust. Whereas, you know, Russia, Africa's got its own issues in terms of, uh, you know, legal issues or compliance issues that they, so they want a Westerner to have gone and seen it. Largely because if you get it wrong and you're sat in England, it's much easier for them to sue you or have some repercussions. Whereas if they're trying to sue um, a Russian, I'm sure there are Russian surveyors who could do the work, but the, the legal thing is much more complicated. Cheaper to fly me out. Uh, so it's probably the first time he's dealt with Russia. Whereas if you, if we did later on when we were dealing with a, a big travel provider, you know they'd sent other people to Russia, so they'd learnt those lessons before we had to. Um, whereas he would learn that lesson from us, and then probably never send anyone to Russia again. So it's a wasted bit of knowledge, I suppose. And just thinking about some of these places that you've, you've been to, was there kind of a duty of care aspect with that? You're sending you to these places that yeah. are potentially dangerous. That yeah, you, you're there. yeah. How did they work? Was it kind of tracking? Was it, How would they have known if you would have been? Well, there was, certain, you know, there was the whole sort of, you'd be in contact with the office with emails and stuff. They would have your um, travel details and your next kin and all that kind of thing. Um, and the office would check on you. But, you know, these guys, some of these guys I've been working with were, you know, they were 55, 60. They'd been doing it since they were 20. So to them, they were really relaxed about it because they were like, well, this is incredible. You know, now I've got a mobile phone that works when I'm in a foreign country. Whereas, you know, I used to do this when if someone had to get hold of me, they, they 
they were having to ring the head office and then go through various calls and whatever. So, you know, to them, it, it felt fine. But th- if it was a dangerous place, they tend to send two of us. So there's that bit And of was it one person had more experience in that area for, of that location, for instance, the, and then someone that's a bit... There was a bit of that, but it was more just that, so you weren't dealing with it by, by yourself. Where did I have that? I, I mean, so, okay, example of something, not that a travel agent particularly have helped you with this, but um, we... So this was one where we were traveling with the travel company, but I went to Mozambique and I don't even know much about the history of Mozambique, but they had post-colonial big civil war and history lesson there for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Um, Don't worry about, don't worry about looking (laughs) up. That's just exactly how it happened. (laughs) Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Just big civil war. Um, But they had, we went out to value a hydro dam that had been built um, for apartheid South Africa, so to provide power in South Africa. And um, it was a bit, because it, it was the main thing that generated money for Mozambique at the time. During the war, it was fought over quite a lot. Now, we were there for, I think it was there for about two weeks. And they, again, one of these countries, a bit more re- relaxed, should we say. Yeah. Um, so we got there. They just threw us a set of keys. There's a car out there truck thing help yourselves do what you want to do travel around blah 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 because it you know we were valuing the village that was associated with this place it was huge and um so about five days in someone comes along and says oh you know we'll um should we go for dinner all right yeah first time we've had much contact with anyone who worked there and we're chatting away and um i'd seen these signs everywhere and there were people living what was essentially looked like a fairly subsistence lifestyle in and around but not to do with but on the land but not to do with the land as it were not to do with the mine the um, dam and there were people there's all these signs saying don't dig now I thought this was about you know we don't want you trying to cultivate this bit of land or whatever you're whatever you're doing um, you know just warning people off anyway so I said to the guy oh what's, what are these signs about just trying to make conversation he said oh yeah yeah has no one told you no one told me what oh yeah don't step off tarmac stay on tarmac at all times okay why is that i've been dry i've been driving thinking it's fun to drive like off-road because we can i've been running around buildings i've been you know i'll go i'll climb up this bank because i'll get a better photo all this kind of stuff and it turns out the place was littered with landmines he was like we've no idea where all the landmines are he said that sign is because if you're digging and you hit landmine you are going up and he said you know that's so stay on the tarmac you know there's no landmines i was like jeez thanks for that yeah yeah so i mean that's the sign in the reception when you get the keys But I mean, that was one whereby um, we finished early. You know, we got it. We got all the work done. We got finished early. And um, it was brilliant because we were able to just um, speak to someone and they got us out on an earlier flight and, um, and we were back. So, and previous to that, I, you know, where I'd had situations where I'd booked my own flights and I, you know, I had no flexibility. I was stuck, you know, I'd finish early and I was stuck somewhere. Or you, worst case, you're overrunning. You know, I've had a situation where I had to pay for a second flight because you, we'd overrun. And you're having to carry that cost on your credit card because there wasn't, you know, there wasn't much we could do about it. Wasn't there a situation where you needed to get back from a place to get a midwife appointment? Was yeah, it? yeah. So, um, yeah, and we're traveling around. So this one, I was, um, I, so we'd, we'd done a couple of jobs, Eastern Europe, done a few bits. And um, the last site we had to visit was Yerevan, which is, I think from memory is Moldova, but I can't quite remember. Anyway, so I was in Yerevan. And um, I was with a colleague and we came back and things had just got out of kilter with flights and everything else. And, um, and yeah, it was my, um, it was actually the scan for my, uh, the three, uh, 12 week scan for my, um, for my daughter. So obviously wanted to be back for it. And um, 
yeah, sort of made made the call and um, they got me sorted, got me on a flight. Um, I know it's a bit of a, uh, what's the word? A bit of a odd flight round. I think I ended up having to sort of hop somewhere and then through to Amsterdam or whatever, but not something, you know, I wouldn't have managed to queue well, those that flights was like up. a travel management company. That was yeah, a that was, that, that was, sort yeah, of. I mean, yeah. They were able to sort that out for me. Quick phone call. They had like an emergency number, I think it was, and they just got in touch with them and said, "Look, you booked this for me. Um, I need to get back earlier, uh, or yeah, rather, I wasn't going to make the flight that I wanted to make." And blah blah. blah. And they sorted it out for me, and yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah, made a big difference. And I imagine that's one of the negatives of using a one-man band as opposed to like a TMC. They're not going to be available twenty-four-seven to you. They have to get hold of them in yeah. the first place. But um, the guy's but yeah. out drinking with his friends, and then you ring up. I've got to get back, and he's yeah. thinking. You're going nowhere, pal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll draw you a picture of the scan and you can have it. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they, we had other situations where we, yeah, we did get stuck places because either we'd booked ourselves or we couldn't get back. And, um, you know, I'd, it, it, it's up to each individual how you want to handle it. But, yeah. um, I, you know, I had, a, I had a colleague and he used to get, he, he, I mean, look, he was tight. There's no two ways about it. He was tight. And he used to, um, uh, and yeah, you know, it's amazing what worked for him. But he'd, he'd book his own hotels. I want my own hotel, I want certain things. Quite fussy, fine. But he'd book a hotel. He'd, look, he'd find it on late rooms or, you know, something like that some on the internet. And we, we got some good deals at times, especially when you were in the UK doing that kind of thing. And he'd, he'd find, like, and the, the rate would be whatever it was. And then he'd ring the hotel and be like, can you beat that rate? And blah, blah, blah. And eventually, you know, we had to say to him, like... You, you are, you're penny pinching, you're saving yourself five quid here, five quid there. It's not even your money. It's not even our money. It's the client's money, which I appreciate, you know, yeah. look after your client. But do you think the client would rather you spend two hours researching what you're doing for him before you arrive or two hours making sure you're, you've saved him a tenner on a hotel? I mean, it's just crazy, but that's, you know, each person does something different, I suppose. You've got to have some good experiences. You've got to have some... Yeah, what, what's been your best? What's been your... Uh, best travel experience um so i mean uh, that first trip to um to africa was pretty special yeah. we can't um, use that we've already talked about that already so talked on, about james. that one on. um yeah i mean this uh, is a polish what? podcast james we should have heard. yeah <laughs> what were some of the highlights <laughs> so um i once flew into copenhagen did a job and then drove all the way up to the north of sweden and in fair, you know, fairly snowy time of year, and that was just incredible. You know, it took me about a day, but it was just, you know, that was just an incredible sort of journey. Really, you know, the, the really enjoyed that. Um, I and you know, some of the people you meet who look after you, and um, I went to Botswana. We really looked after there. That was that was great, and we saw some, you know, really nice sort of really really good countryside things like that. Um, for the weather, the time I went to um, to Trinidad, that was pretty good. Uh, yeah, that was some good sunshine. So yeah, look, there's been some, there's been some great ones, but there's. Uh, I mean, as you been some as your family gets older, do you think that you would ever go back more to the? Do you think that would ever come up that you'd like to do some more international travel? Would um yeah, I mean, look, you you looked at it from the from the guys who you know their kids had grown up and and weren't there weren't about anymore, and yeah, it's not it's not a bad lifestyle. And it was fairly um you know so um but you know see, with seniority you get you get some perks, don't you? So yeah. um whereas I would be. I yeah. wouldn't know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know again. <laughs> yeah, look at this. Yeah, isn't, this yeah. Isn't well, <laughs> it, maybe this is to come, yeah. but um, but yeah, no. So, you know, I had a, I had a guy, uh, he worked with me and he would 
the jobs would go through him. So he would cherry pick the good ones. So whereas I would be scrabbling around in the back of a van on my way to, um, to Kazakhstan or the time I got onto a flight, and I say a flight, this was like a little internal flight. And literally, as you got to the airplane, the guy looked at you and said, how much do you weigh? How much does your bag weigh? And you'd look at him and go, oh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm 10 stone. And he'd look at you and go, nah, you're nearer to 11. You're sitting back right. And then the next guy on, you're right, you're back left. And he's literally bouncing out the plane because there was eight of us and it was that kind of, you're just like, okay, this is this doesn't feel very professional. That's, that's pressure at your job. So while I was doing those kind of things, um, this guy would cherry pick the job, which involved flying into the boot of Italy, working his way up to the north of Italy across a week um, with about three stops along the way, like, you know, Rome, Naples, and he'd like have got it set up so that he had you know day in each probably about half a day's work the rest of the time he'd be eating ice cream and pizza and you know so when you can cherry pick the good ones it um it works well he's listening to this now going it wasn't all great yeah <laughs> well he did i've had some bad experiences as well <laughs> oh, he did <laughs> yeah so <laughs> so when when you say about when you say about driving he um he was going away to with a colleague of mine to cardiff for two nights and could have just left it there that could have been well yeah i know yeah and uh my so my colleague at the time had an mr2 so he said to this guy who was our boss he said look um he said he said i'll drive and he's like yeah fine he said got to travel light though there's not a lot of room in the boot obviously and i've got no back oh yeah fine so he gets there first thing in the morning he said literally he's got he's literally got a toothbrush and a plastic bag with uh, presumably a shirt and a pair of pants in it and that was it that was him that was all he's got and then get to the other end and my mate pulls out a bag, a duffel bag with his kit, and he's like, you said travel light. I said, yeah, light. I mean, I meant like a small bag, not just your toothbrush. Not, and got, yeah, not a Sainsbury's carrying bag and your toothbrush. There are other supermarkets available. <laughs> uh, we just have to throw that in there. James, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming and seeing us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And don't forget, you can get involved in Absolute Clarity either as a guest or through sponsorship by emailing podcast at clarity.tm.co.uk. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.